0: Hello and welcome to Mornings with Joel commercial real estate podcast where we focus on rising stars and established players in commercial real estate and talk to them about how they are building legacies in today's marketplace. Hello, we'd like to welcome you to the Mornings with Joel CRE podcast. We're very excited today to have a Long-time acquaintance of mine, Terrence Murray, who we've known or who I've known for many, many years. And uh, we're excited to have him with us today He's with uh, Gateway Merchant Banking. Terrence, good to see you, man. It's been a minute.
1: Hey, glad, glad to be here. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and the group.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. We were just joking off camera that uh, last time I saw you didn't have a, a beard and it certainly wasn't great. So I guess we're all getting older these days, huh? <laughs>
1: That's right. A little maturity happening over here.
0: Yeah, yeah, so that's just how it goes. But it was good on you, man, so keep it up.
1: So oh, appreciate it.
0: <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I just wanted to um, catch up with you. As you know, we uh, we do this podcast and we're generally uh, talking to um, different individuals that are trying to really advance their careers in commercial real estate. You know, as we discussed before, uh, the majority of uh, people that are in commercial real estate are not minorities. You know, they make up a very, very small portion. And so the idea is to... Expose them to people who have done a lot in commercial real estate, so they know what the possibilities are, and they'll also learn how they can advance their own careers. So, um, Terrence, I'm excited to have you here today because you know we go back. Um, I remember, um, I think when we first met, you were working at Prudential. What was happening back? Then? How did you even get into that role? I mean, you know, just take us back a little bit as to how you got in commercial real estate in the first place. How that all happen?
1: Sure, sure thing. So I'll, I'll, I'll take you back, and I'll take you through the steps for for people on the phone who, who are meeting me for the first time, this isn't going to be a, a promotional. It, it will be just a couple of breadcrumbs. And uh, I'm much more interactive than uh, wanting to give a, a long soliloquy about my background. But to to help us put the conversation in perspective and how I got interested in real estate, for me, it started at a very young age. I, I knew way back in, in elementary school, actually, that I wanted to uh, have a career in real estate. I didn't know how to articulate it, obviously, at that point, but went through various thoughts as a kid about becoming an architect, becoming a structural engineer, becoming a, having a career in construction uh, management, becoming a GC. So really kind of thought through all of those things as a kid, and then got an internship with Equitable Real Estate in Atlanta through inroads, actually. And, and when I was doing that first internship, I was actually working in the building that had been developed by my favorite architect, John Portman. Uh, for those from Atlanta, you know, John Portman is, is, is very influential in the skyline and the development of Atlanta, but also just kind of took the world by storm and developed all over the world. Uh, he was one of the early architects and developers doing major work throughout China. And for anybody who's ever been at a Hyatt hotel or wondered why the elevators were in the middle and you have this big open atrium, that's all John Portman. And so I was lucky enough to have my first internship working at a building that John Portman had owned and designed and the building had been foreclosed on by, uh, by equitable real estate. And as I'm there working at Equitable, this is when I first start understanding the design is one thing, Mm -hmm. but the finance, the finance is really what's driving what's going on in the business. That's when I found out that real estate is a finance business and a heavily capital intensive business. And from there, I stopped thinking as much about just the construction side and really started thinking about the financing side. And so from there, I pursued internships, looking at mortgage-backed securities. I ended up uh, with an internship uh, in New York working for Morgan Stanley. And that was just purely out of a function of I was working for MetLife Real Estate for two summers in Atlanta. And everybody I was on the phone with was in New York all day. And I'm thinking, well, clearly, that must be where I'm supposed to be. And so I made the move there ended up after undergrad uh doing 3 years of real estate investment banking before going to Wharton to get a uh MBA with a focus on real estate and then coming back to New York to do real estate investment banking and it, and it's just evolution right as as you're learning you know I'm I'm understanding you know now hey the the bankers are hot shots but it's the clients that are actually the ones that are Making all the money, right? We're we're flying commercial; they're flying private. And saying, okay, well, all right, all right. So this yeah. is a, this is another yeah. this is another piece of the business to learn, and uh, and so I was a general finance person in real estate, you know, doing your typical investment banking role, mm-hmm. and decided to to leave that to really start getting some asset level focus, and so spent the next kind of four and a half years at. Fannie Mae and their multifamily group okay. uh, really understanding the capital markets, really understanding how to structure deals, MBS, all of that. And Joe, back to the question you asked me a couple of minutes ago, how did I end up in the role at Prudential? Well,
0: I was that part of Fannie Mae uh, with Kim Bacon at that time, or was that before him? Yeah,
1: yeah, 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 well, absolutely. So, so, so it's, it's all luck, man. It's all luck. Ken had a had a mentor at, at Fannie, his name was Lou Hoyce. And Ken and Lou put their heads together and decided that they needed to bring a different type of talent into Fannie Mae. And they started an MBA, an MBA rotational program. And one of the guys that I was at Wharton with uh, had been recruited down there in that first class. And then a guy you may know, Keith Gordon. Yeah, so Keith and no I, order. yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. Keith and I were analysts together okay. in New York, mm-hmm. and so turns out Keith got recruited. So Keith was Keith had finished up his MBA at, at Harvard. I finished mine at Wharton. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were both about a year out, and um, mm-hmm. Keith got recruited down there. So now, uh, my buddy from Wharton, her Canada, Keith, who I had known since we were baby bankers, mm-hmm. and I and myself, when we're down here on this MBA rotational program. Uh, and So that's what I'm saying, right? It's, it's luck. It's luck and relationships and raising your hand and letting people know that you're open to different experiences. So I stayed for four and a half years and really kind of saw, you know, just another tremendous learning experience. Mm-hmm. Right. And this was right as we were moving into 2008. Mm-hmm. Inside of Fannie, you could see the, at least I could. Could see the writing on the wall as to the type of difficulties that Fannie was going to have because of the way it was being mandated to make loans. And so I saw that and thought to myself, you know what? I still have this idea that I need to get to, to the investing side of the business. I still need to be the client. I need to understand how to opportunistically buy and own real estate. And so... I found my way over to Prudential Real Estate Investors and what they needed at the time was someone who had capital markets experience, but also a desire and a focus to be close to the asset. So I had this hybrid role of, I came in with the mandate to help really kind of put some structure around our financing capabilities in the US and to do kind of opportunistic, investments in portfolios and niche asset classes. Well, I joined Prudential, believe it or not, April Fool's Day of 2008. April 1st was was first day over there. And and it was one of these things where the market started to slide in the wrong direction pretty quickly. Uh-huh. And we didn't do an acquisition for 18 months once the GFC hit. So, so it was like October of 2008, maybe, you know, October, maybe November was when the, the last deals kind of made their way through investment committee. And from there, the financing piece ended up being, you know, not because of me, but just ended up being the most important part of the business at that time. So right place, right time to be in that seat and spent the next two years on this crazy ride of helping the business manage itself through the GFC, working directly with our partners to help them recapitalize their businesses and their individual deals, working with the banks uh, to put credit facilities in place, did a lot of work with Ken Bacon, uh, not Ken Bacon, but Ken McIntyre. When when he was at Met, you know, I said Bacon because he saved my bacon. um, (laughs) Yeah. We needed a, We needed to be able to put a facility in place that didn't conflict with our bank lines with Wells Fargo and J.P. Morgan. And Ken and I, uh, and I give the credit to Ken and his team, you know, put together this really creative, semi-secure structure that didn't violate the covenants of my existing facilities, but gave us all the liquidity we needed to ride oh. this thing out. You know, and I'd known Kim for years. He's a family alum. I'm a FAMU alum. Mm-hmm. So it was great to work with him in that capacity, and just really see kind of the mental firepower put to bear at the worst time in the market to come up with what was really the most creative uh, structure we had in place. Um, so, you know,
0: hey, so actually, you, one question real quick, just sure. going for our audience: What's GFC? Just to define.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. So, so the so the Great Financial Crisis. So, okay. so for those of you whose careers in real estate started post kind of 2012, call it 2003 to 2007, was a time in real estate where people were almost making money with their eyes closed and their hands tied behind their back. It was just seemingly that easy to make money in real estate because there was was just the explosion of uh, structured finance and industry. There was A mandate from the federal government to increase the homeowner percentage rate in the country, and so that's where Fannie and Freddie had their big issues. Was the federal government was pushing them to make loans? So you had structure finance on one side, you had the federal government on the other side, and all of that was just pushing money into real estate. And of course, it came to a big crash in September of two thousand eight. And so, you know, you you play that all the way out and. You know, I had a great time working through that period, uh, learning a lot, doing a lot, getting global exposure to our book of business, and then coming out the other side of that. You know, then we started doing some acquisitions. And so I had the opportunity to do that acquisition work that I showed up to do. And as we pushed through all of that, you know, I wasn't inside the shop raising the diversity flag. I was actually just looking for deals to do for myself to advance my career and the people that I knew just happened to be minorities. Right. So I was, you know, I've been teaching a REAP class a couple of years. I've been going to the Reese meeting for a couple of years, you know, I'm a FAMU alum. So, so, you know, I had a pretty decent uh, network of black people involved in real estate. And, oh. you know, so I it occurred to me that I had not done a deal in my entire career with another African-American at the other side of the table, not a single one, not working at any of the large investment banks I worked at, not working at Fannie Mae and not working at Prudential, which at the time was, you know, somewhere calling it 35 to $40 billion of AUM just on the real estate side. And so I was sitting there trying to bring deals in the door. You know, it it just got to the point where for as good as everyone was, for as well-intentioned as everyone was, you know there there wasn't there wasn't direct friction but it was just this slow inertia of trying to get new partners into the system mm-hmm. and i ended up making a decision you know it was kind of like, well look i can stay on this side of the desk and keep trying to figure it out or i can go try it for myself and so that's my, the
0: private debt side of the table yeah yeah
1: <laughs> it, it, you know so yeah. So I partnered with a classmate of mine from FAMU, Charles Frazier, who had been an independent developer for you know 15 years plus. We partnered together. I brought an institutional view to the business. He brought an entrepreneurial view to the business. We got together and developed a hundred million dollar build in, in Northwest DC. Had a great, just had a great round trip with that deal. We uh we delivered it on time, under budget. And we were able to exit out and sell it to CIM before even beginning lease up. Oh, so it was a, it was a fantastic, uh, it was a fantastic run for us. And that's really been kind of the foundation of the approach that we bring to the business. And so the, the last thing I'll say, and I didn't mean to speak this long uh, about my particular career, but just trying to give people kind of the, the different steps and in, in the, and in the, the through point of all of this is, you know, aggregating skills, being flexible, and and looking for that next opportunity. And one of the things that was pivotal for me was, as we were getting Trellis House—that's the name of the deal we um, we did in DC—as we were getting Trellis House capitalized, I was recruited by a uh, private equity hedge fund group out of Minneapolis that wanted to start a New York office and they were launching their first real estate specific fund. So they needed someone who knew the capital markets. They needed someone who knew their way around New York. They needed someone who knew real estate. And they quite frankly, didn't care that I was developing this project outside of my day to day. And so, you know, people use the phrase of having your cake and eating it too. I mean, this was better than having my cake and eating it too. I was able to be part of opening the New York office, part of launching this uh, this fund. And I was really the face of that business to the New York capital markets for the first uh, couple of years of being there. And so that gave me this private equity insight into how do you grow a business? How do you buy businesses? How do you invest in businesses? And I ended up not only doing real estate, but I did oil and gas. I did shipping. I did especially finance. I worked on deals in Canada, India, Greece, Sweden, Australia. And so that just took my perspective to a completely different level. And and I'll stop talking, but just to tie this all in a bow. So when you wonder why a development shop is named Gateway Merchant Banking, Mm -hmm. it's because, yes, we are developing multifamily real estate today. And we want to be the absolute best developers of multifamily real estate. We focus on every detail of every project we do. And, not but, and we see the capital market's influences on the real asset. And we're making sure that we're positioned for making the trade out of the physical asset to the financial asset, if that is the most opportunistic move for us down the road. So that's how gateway merchant banking got its name, and that's kind of the what informs how we view the market.
0: Okay, all right. That's a uh, quite a quite a story. You've been on quite a ride. Yeah, and uh, you even gave me some pieces I didn't know. So that was good. That was that was really good. I wanted to ask you also. You spent a um, a short period of time at the um, oh man, it's slipping my mind right now. The um the the group that, that's doing the technology play up in New York. With the young black guy, that yeah, what's
1: you think about Resi? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: How's, how's that? Uh, how did have? You know, that's that's an interesting spin on you know what real estate is is headed. Uh, what's your thoughts on that? As to just becoming a more technical based type industry, as opposed to um, you know just more of the traditional way of doing
1: things. Yeah, so, sure thing. Is real
0: estate yeah. like for disruption?
1: Absolutely. And so for the people on the, on the phone. Resi is a group. Another fam, two FAMU alums uh, founded founded the business. One of them had a structured finance uh, background. One of them had a brokerage background, and so they came together to think about what ended what ended up being a business that it in a in a short in a short way of describing the business is a business that looks at purchasing leases versus purchasing an asset. So they will go to a property owner. And if the property owner has 150 units in a building, they will forward purchase the leases of 75 of those 150 units. And then they have algorithms that allow them to more efficiently price the units that they've uh, purchased. And then they lease directly to, to the end user. So for the landlord, it's great because they have a floor on uh, you know 50% of their units. So that That helps them get to their debt service levels, their stabilization levels a lot quicker. But for Resi's standpoint, they have all the benefits of the physical asset without the headaches of ownership. So it's a really interesting model.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's that's interesting. Where do you think the opportunities are in commercial real estate these days from a technical standpoint? You've obviously seen every angle possible of commercial real estate. Where where do you think those opportunities lie right now?
1: You know, I think that, that the industry, you know, from its, from its evolution has been first focused on location, secondly, focused on operations. And I think that the industry is just now a little bit starting to wake up to being focused on its tenants. And, and what I mean by that is, if you own a retail business or, or, or retail, retail, uh, real estate, and and let's say it's a restaurant, just to, just to pick one, you're really now in the restaurant business. And so people, people can think about it from a standpoint of I'm in a real estate business. And if, you know, Chipotle isn't successful, I'll just put Qdoba in. Okay, fine. That, that generally, works from, okay, same traffic count, same visibility, same type of. but the next piece of this where where I think the industry is starting to wake up is well, wait a minute, sure, I have this box, and it's and it's set up with the right, you know, with the right level of venting and fireproofing and all these things that can attract a tenant that is cooking food and bringing people in and out the door. But then the next piece of it is, but wait a minute. Do I need to bring in a business that only has brick and mortar or do I need to bring in a business that has a very robust delivery system? Okay, if they don't have their own delivery system, how are they working with all of the apps that are online? Okay, well, are they getting the right level of traffic from apps? Because if they're not, then how are they going to continue to pay rent? Okay, well, what are the things that they need Mm -hmm. to be successful to continue to pay rent? Well, let me think. It's more than just the space now. Maybe it's a different type of signage. Maybe it's a different type of posting. Maybe it's I, as the real estate owner, need to have a separate social presence for all of the tenants for my buildings where I am side by side promoting their business along with them to make sure I'm driving traffic because that is in the best interest of me and my investors. And so I think that what you'll see over time is evolution from, hey, I'm just a landlord. I own the box. If you pay your rent, great. If you don't, no problem because vacancy is really what kills the real estate owner. It's not the rent level. It's the vacancy that kills the, that kills the landlord and the TIs. Right. I mean, you, so, so Chipotle moves out and Qdobo moves in, but you know what you do as a landlord is now you have to go in and strip out all of the finishes of Chipotle and replace it with all of the finishes of Qdoba. It's not like Qdoba comes in and says, well, this is fine and I'll just use it. As close yeah. as those two businesses are, right? Uh-huh. They have a whole different color palette. They have a whole different layout. They have a whole different scheme. And you as a landlord through TIs are paying for all of that. So you're that's why I say you're really in the in the restaurant business with your tenant. Because right. you're taking that bet. And if they blow out in three years, you're not recouping all of those ti. So I think that you get more focus on data than you've had in the past, more focus on traffic count. And people just have have a higher attention uh, to that type of detail.
0: Yeah. And ti being intended improvements uh, for those who, who don't know. Yes. Oh, yeah. So that, that sounds that sounds good. So really, you see the, and by the way, we're going to start opening up the uh, the call for any of you who have questions. Uh, you can put those in the chat box or just raise your virtual hand and we'll be happy to call on you. So you're saying that you, you see the opportunities uh, more so in landlords becoming more engaged with their tenants to uh, ensure their success if at all possible.
1: Yeah, data-driven. Uh, it, data-driven is, is the key. I think so. All right.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. So we talk about being data-driven. Um what about other forms of technology as it relates? Where, where do you see the holes in the industry as it relates to uh technology? You know, what do developers need? What do landlords need? What do you see? Because you mentioned data. So there has to be some mechanism to, to get that data. So if, if you kind of, and that's a it's a broad question, but you know, what what are your what are your thoughts on that?
1: So I'll talk about our business, right? So we're okay. developing uh we're developing apartment buildings, right? Developing class A apartment buildings. And one of the things I was doing last week, we're designing a project right now in Maryland. And one of the things we were doing last week, we had the architect on the phone. We had the landscape architect on the phone. We had the civil engineer on the phone. We had the GC on the phone. You know, we got all these people on on the call. You know what we're talking about? Well, how many... Lounge chair? Should we have at the pool? Should we have five or should we have ten? How deep should the pool pool be? How how long should it be? Well, should we put a kid area over here? Should we put a playground? Should, so, so we're talking about things that are very very important to the end user experience. But what we don't have is a report where we hit a button that says of the 100 properties and data set from Delaware to Richmond, Virginia, you know, the, the entire Mid-Atlantic, right? We don't have a data set that says X percent of the tenants use the pool X percent of the time. Therefore, you need X percent of capacity from the lounge chairs and the grills. Those are the things that I think we're gonna start seeing, become more a part of the conversation than really what happens now, which is primarily anecdotal. It's primarily anecdotal and even the best property managers will tell you, well, yeah, at our property over here, we really haven't seen that many people using the pool. So we don't think that this property will have that many people using the pool either. And it's great insight, but now how do I take that to the bank, right? How do I really, how do I really quantify, well, hey guys, we really just need a, a splash pool and some cabanas because that's the only thing people care about. That's the level of data that I think is missing. The other example I'll give you is site selection. Uh-huh. Well, sure. I want to be close to a train stop or transit, uh, depending, you know, whatever city I'm in. Either I want to be close to an on off ramp in Atlanta or I want to be close to the subway in New York. Or maybe I want to be on the BART line in Oakland, like whatever it is. Right. You you think about transportation. But now with this post-COVID world that we're moving into, you know, you start thinking, well, Wait a minute. If I'm of a certain uh, seniority in my company, the honest answer is I'm probably not going to the office more than three days a week anymore. So how important is it to be close to transportation? Whereas if you're a junior resource in the company, well, now you're still early in your career and you're learning. So you want to be in the office every day. You need to be in the office every day. So, you probably really care about being close to transit. Now, as you're designing units around that and you really start thinking about who your renter is, now it's well, hey, maybe we do smaller units in the transit oriented, larger units somewhere else. That sounds kind of obvious, but what you end up with in a lot of buildings is like over the last kind of seven, eight years, you had this huge focus on the micro unit, right? It was all about the micro unit. Uh And now with COVID, everyone's saying, well, everybody's moving to the suburbs. So now we need to do big suburban units. And I'm saying broad brush maybe, but there's probably some nuance in there where it's not just one or the other, Uh but you need some data to help you make those decisions about when and how you put these different plans into place.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well that's that's interesting when you look at it that way because um, you know, it's it's gotta become a more data-driven industry. You know, some of the conversations that we've had uh relate directly to, you know, the, the projection of cost estimates for construction on right. the projection of rents uh, without having to pick up the phone and call Grayscore all the time to get mm-hmm. those numbers. You know, how do how do you do that? You know, should we build more three bedrooms or should we build more studios? You know, in addition to the two ones. You know, all those type of questions. Uh, you know, we we found that there's holes in the industry related to that. Do you see the same thing, or is it
1: a little bit different? Oh, absolutely. What you're saying is just an extension of the example I gave. It's okay. it's all it's all related, and that's what and that's the point, right? You pick up the phone and you call Graystar and look. Graystar is great. We do business with them. You know, like with CoStar, you get a CoStar report or you get a Reese report. And, and with those different groups, you get, even when you try to drill down to the submarket, right now, the data still starts to thin out a bit, right? You get great kind of, I'll call it semi-macro insights, but I'm not sure where everybody sits, but you know, I'll, I'll, I'll pick Atlanta, right? If you give me a, a Metro Atlanta leasing report, and it's just a Metro Atlanta leasing report, well, okay, if I'm building in Grant Park, how much do I care about what's happening in West Midtown? Wow. And if I'm, if I'm building in Shambly, how much do I really care about what's going on in the West End? You yeah. know, it's it, totally different. Right. It, but but when you get these reports, you know, you get kind of a, a semi-macro market report. And what you spend your time trying to do is you spend your time trying to slice down to the three or four comps in a broader data set mm-hmm. that really speak to your competition. And, I, and what I'm saying is there is, inf- there is more information out there that can be mined. And I think that people will start doing just that.
0: Yeah, so. yeah. <clears throat> no, valuable point. Let me ask one other thing before we uh, start taking a couple of these questions here. Because we did say we were going to talk about valuations and uh, that's been one of your er- areas of expertise. In just simplistic terms, how do you go about valuing a piece of property to uh, figure out whether it's uh, you know worth a site for development or whether you should develop on that site? How do how you go about the process of evaluating all of that to make that kind of decision?
1: Okay, so so as I, um, <laughs> and I'm laughing a little bit and, it, and it's gonna sound like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth. So stay with me <laughs> because I, I still fundamentally believe that before anything, it just has to be a, a good real estate deal, right? It has to be a it has to be a good piece of real estate, and I and I've been thinking about it all weekend, trying to figure out how do you distill down on a phone call what a good piece of real estate is, right? It's all of the common sense yet intangible things that you want to factor into that first gut feel about it. It is when I say location, it's it's not just proximity. It is, is there a natural or man-made barrier uh, separating you from ultimately where where your tenants want to be? Meaning, are you on the wrong side of the highway? Are you on the wrong side of a train track? Are you on the wrong side of a bridge or a body of water? Sure, you may be close in proximity, Uh but if your tenants can't easily access jobs, restaurants, retail, whatever it is they're trying to access, then it doesn't matter that you are you know close if people have some barrier that's keeping you from getting there. the visibility uh-huh. you build the greatest thing in the world will people see it will people find it? can your tenant actually locate it? can their clients actually get to them right so that's a that's another thing path of growth, future growth, that's where the entrepreneur comes in you know someone has to be able to look down the block and understand what's coming your way and figuring out if you're in front of it right on top of it or already behind it meaning you're paying too much for the site because the growth potential that you're paying for has already come and gone so those are the types of intangible things that you have to be able to figure out. And then, you know, it's the the physical, it's the physical real estate, right? Is it a 30 degree slope, even though you're right where you need to be, but you can't build anything on it, right? Then you get into the zoning and you start thinking about how hard is it to fight city hall to get approval for what you want to build. Now, in all of what I said, I hadn't, picked up a pencil i have not opened excel i have not done anything around joe what your actual question is Uh valuation because without being able to answer all of that stuff first it's kind of not worth your time to start running a model which is just going to be fiction if you can't get it approved if you you know if you're in the hundred-year floodplain, if you're having to dig down, you know, three stories to lay your foundation, is fiction if you don't know how to put that into your model. So now, when you get to your model, now it gets to be actually pretty simple because it's just math.
0: It's just math. Yeah, and, and,
1: yeah it, it's it's just math, and, mm-hmm. and you're thinking about two things: you're thinking about debt service coverage, and you're thinking about exit proceeds. Mm-hmm. Is what you're underwriting in your base case able to cover your debt service coverage if things don't move as fast or as good as you want them to? Mm-hmm. And then on exit, can you exit out at a number cap rate, right? right. Is your cap rate at a spot where you exit out to a point where you can make a reasonable profit for your investors? That's That's all it comes down to when you get to the math. Yeah,
0: yeah. So Very good point. And so cap rate, uh, for those who don't know, is capitalization rate it has to do with the amount of return on the money that you're putting out. Obviously, uh, a higher cap rate is a good thing for investors from that standpoint, but a, a lower cap rate actually means a higher sales price, which uh, means more, more profit from that standpoint. So but I don't want to do a whole class on, on cap rates, but that's one thing to um, to take a look at. Then there was another term that you use. Oh, yeah. Debt service. Basically, can the uh, property generate enough revenue to cover the mortgage on it? And that's what debt service is. So, Very simply put. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's really what it boils down to. You have to get those intangible things in place. And some of them, I I think you hit the nail on the head with the proximity because you can look at a map and say, okay, well, you know, this is two minutes away from this particular location. But as we've seen in, in major cities, if you're not on that right side of the train tracks, you know, there's a big, big difference in, um, you know, what that value would be. You know, I always look at, um, you know, pick New York for an example. You look at Staten Island and, and Manhattan. The value right. of real estate is vastly different, but you're by the same body of water, right? right. So, right. I mean, what's what's the difference there, right? Or you could even um, look at Atlanta. Everything is on the Peachtree Street side of things and not on the Coca-Cola headquarters side of things. That's right. <laughs> So it it all depends, even though they're right close to each other. So you got to look at those things as well. So very, very good points being brought out there. Uh, Let me answer one of these questions right quick. For someone who does not have a financial or similar background, what is an effective path to get into commercial real estate that doesn't involve additional schooling? Uh, How would you answer that, Salis? I
1: would just say, figure out figure out what your actual strengths are. I know people that have literature degrees that have been extremely successful in real estate. The first vice president I reported to as an analyst was an English major. and it, you know what, what you have to be able to do is show up and add value from where you start but then quickly start learning everybody else's job. So I wouldn't let it dissuade me at all. If you're a great writer, then, as you present yourself to uh, to hiring managers, then lean on that strength. Present your resume in a way that's different than other people's resume. I'm not saying go in and write a book, but I am saying I would expect your resume to look a lot different than mine, which is basically a mishmash of a bunch of numbers and a bunch of deals because that's where I've spent my career. Whereas I would expect yours to be better articulated around your strengths and your ability to add value to the organization. So just take whatever you have and be confident in, in presenting that and make it abundantly clear that you are curious. Even if you're 40 years old, you still have to be curious about this business to be successful.
0: Yeah, yeah, very good point that you brought out there about the curiosity of it. Thank you for answering that. Ron, if that doesn't answer your question, let us know, we'll, uh, we'll add you back in and you can elaborate on that.
1: Uh, that was perfect.
0: That was perfect, okay. All right, fantastic. Thanks for adding in. Kevin, you had your hand up. You had a question for us?
1: Sure. Good morning. I had a question that's kind of similar and a little bit of a follow up to uh, the question you asked. You know, I, I, I kind of have a similar background, started out in architecture, worked for some general contractors and making my way through the development world by means of project management. And what I found is that, you know, you talked about skill aggregation, you know, early in your in your in your conversation. Could you maybe provide a little bit more information on how you're able to leverage those skills as you move from spot to spot? And then at a certain point, you had to make that jump. You know, you found out that, you know, finance was the, the point where all things collide and that's where you needed to be. And can you talk about, you know, making that jump and what that looks like, the signals you see uh, when you're making that move? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure thing. So so from the skill standpoint, every, and I'm trying to think of a way to say it, every interview that I've gone into, I have always made it a point to start talking about me and what I can do from a value add standpoint first. I don't know if it's a good strategy or not, but it really is what I was just saying. I really try to I try to take my my point in the world and I try to take it as the starting point in the universe and I try to look out and as I'm having a conversation I'm trying to do my best to connect the dots to, to what the other person experiences. I was actually uh, just speaking with a person who has a background in fashion. And as we were having a phone conversation, I was trying to communicate and I was saying, look, let me explain to you. The way we lay out an amenity center is the way that you lay out buttons on a shirt. When you're laying out buttons on a shirt, you spend time trying to figure out if the button should be two inches or two and a half inches apart. For me, that doesn't mean anything. But for you, you know that that slight change in the position completely changes the aesthetic of a sweater. For me, when I'm laying out my amenity center, I know if I don't get the mailbox room right, it's just going to frustrate my tenants. And they may not ever say, I'm leaving this building because I don't like the experience of getting the mail. But it will be one of those things where when they come home every night, it'll just be like, I don't feel like going in there. It's completely disorganized and it's a waste. So when I'm speaking to people, like you, you have a great, you know, you have a great amount of skills to pull from so that when you go into different rooms, you know, you may not have the finance piece of it, but you can talk about cost in a way that, an MBA finance guy can't talk about costs, So they can theoretically talk about costs. but you can talk about costs from the standpoint of, I've done this many jobs and this always comes in 3% higher across your portfolio of a $30 billion asset management. Well, that 3% turns into X million dollars a year that you guys are losing if you don't focus on this thing. And so if I'm on the other side of the table and you say that to me in an interview, I'm pushing back and I'm saying, well, shoot, okay, if that guy said that to me in the first 15 minutes of me knowing him, well, if I get him for 15 months, I mean, who knows how much value he may add to my organization? So that's how I think about things. And that's how I would approach it. All right, Does that work for you,
0: Kevin? Okay. All right. Thumbs up. Thumbs up. Yeah. So, okay. I'm sorry. Hold on. I didn't mean to add you back there. My apologies. I was trying to lower your hand. So we got you going there. Okay. Yeah. So that's, that's insightful. You know, one thing um, I really appreciate Terrence is that you're very thoughtful and methodical in uh, the way you approach things, which um, obviously has led to the success that you guys have had. Charles has been a a friend for a long time, so I'm happy to see, you know, his success and you guys coming together is a a beautiful thing. And uh, maybe we'll get a chance to do some stuff together as well between our group and your group. So we'll see how that plans out. I actually have something in mind. So uh, Ron knows what I'm talking about. We got a project in Vancouver I'm going to circle back to you about and we'll talk about that a little bit. This sounds good. So in conclusion, as we uh, begin to wrap up here, what other things do you think we should know? if, If you were encouraging a a group of um, people looking to, to grow and, and advance in their career. You know, you mentioned a, a bunch of things already, but uh, what concluding comments would you have to say for our audience as a, a way of encouragement going forward and, and hopefully maybe following in your path of success?
1: Yeah, look, uh, so, it, it, and I mean this, uh, it just stay with me. I would definitely say don't follow in my path of success. Uh, <laughs> it, it, you know, what I... Cut your own trail, huh? Yeah, because what what I realized as I as I matured in my career and just simply got older, and my relationships with my mentors changed. Mm-hmm. You know, when I when I first engaged my mentors early in my career, I thought they had it all figured out and had mm-hmm. done everything right. And you know, I'm trying to do everything they get done. And then as our relationships evolved over time, and now I'm in my mid forties you know, I sit with my mentors and we're all sitting around scratching our heads, still trying to out, right? So what I would say is, again, be curious, uh, be humble, try to learn from as many people uh, as you can. I know it sounds trite, sounds like the stuff that people say all the time, but- I actually
0: sound really, like Steve Jobs with his uh, graduation speech
1: at Stanford. It, you know, it, it, it it's, 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 really, it's really true you know, figure out what success is for you and let that continue to be your measure. Don't let anybody else's um, success be your measure Or, or I won't even say success. I'll say accomplishment because you don't know how successful those individuals are relative to the goals that they set for themselves. So make your own goals, make your own level of success and just know that you add value. Like we're, You add more value today than you did yesterday. So never feel like you've gotten to a point in your career where you're stuck. You aren't stuck. You just have more skills than you know what to do with. And so now you need to recalibrate, put your skills on paper, and figure out how to aim them in the right direction. But you always, hopefully, know more today than you did yesterday. So be confident in that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, Terrence, actually, those are are golden words. You know, I was just thinking back to, um, you know, we started this conversation talking about the recession you know what you call the gfc That's great right. financial crisis right and it was it was amazing because even for myself i personally went into this mindset of well i guess i failed you know everything is over everything i tried didn't work out you know but there were so many things learned from that experience and skill sets and other things that that would develop. and um once you start putting that together you realize that you have a lot of talent and ability to go forward and do many more things from that experience. You know, you're a little bit more cautious. You have a little bit more understanding of how, what a downside could look like. Yeah. As opposed to everything just being upside. Like you said, before that, it was just, everything was upside, right? Real estate always went up. It was always profitable. Everything was always good, but it doesn't always happen that way. And so you take a much more uh, pragmatic approach to things uh, over time, you know, once you get a little bit older, but, uh, those, are, those are golden words, you know, look at your value, put it on table and, um, you know, see how you can use those assets that you do have to create value. You know, I was thinking about uh, the things that Leron uh, was asking about without additional schooling, you know, there's a lot that you can bring to the table, even from a construction standpoint, you know, that can help a, uh, a developer out and other things like that. So very, very wise words, you know, so we appreciate that. Terrence. And like I said, Your uh, your relationship with your mentors changed over time. And I've seen that firsthand as well. Yeah, it it can certainly happen. Certainly happen. So well, I appreciate that. Is there anything else you want to tell us before we wrap up for the day?
1: The the only other thing uh, that pops in my mind and I heard it uh, just a couple of days ago, I heard someone say either I win or I learn. And that was it. So it was win or learn. Not win or lose, just win or learn. So that's another one just to keep in your pocket when you feel like things are going the wrong way.
0: All right, sounds good, sounds good. Well, Terrence, certainly appreciate it. We'll be reaching out to you. As I mentioned, uh, we got a a lot of things to uh, to kind of catch up on offline. But um, it's been a beautiful time to uh, get a chance to sit and talk with you. You know, hopefully you're not going to spend all afternoon out there shoveling snow. No. (laughs) So, but... uh, I remember those days when I lived in Manhattan. So it's, um, it could be a lot of work trying to get your car out and all that good yeah. stuff. So I know what that feels like, but uh, it's been beautiful and it's good catching up with you as well after all this time. So um, it's it's a great thing and we certainly appreciate it. And to all of our guests, so uh, we want to thank you also for being with us today to spend the mornings with Joel's C R E podcast. Very excited to have you here. Please tune in next week as well for another exciting conversation. So thank you very much. And Charles, I mean, Terrence, Thank you again, and I look forward
1: to speaking with you soon. All right. Thanks a lot. Take care, everyone.
0: You've been listening to Mornings with Joel, commercial real estate podcast, where we focus on rising stars and established players in commercial real estate, and talk to them about how they are building legacies in today's marketplace. Please check back weekly to hear our upcoming guests.